Before I read from Luke 16, I just want to say, many people, many theologians, commentators, they say this is the most difficult out of all of Jesus' parables to interpret. Here it is, Luke 16, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read the whole thing all the way through. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe, my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill, make it 800. Now here's especially where it gets difficult. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And Jesus continues, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, in other words, Christians. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is God's word. So, what's the hardest part of what I just read? Is the hardest part the actions of the manager? I mean, that part of the story is simple enough. It's pretty clear. He was dishonest in some way. He messed up in some way because his master owned everything. He was just the manager. He did something wrong to the point where the master had to fire him. And he didn't have a lot of options. So he decided, well, he's going to cook the books a little bit again. He's going to find people who always master money. He's going to slash their debts so that at least when he gets fired and he, you know, if he goes to jail, then when he gets out of jail, he'll be welcomed by someone in this world. Is that the most difficult part? I, I don't think so. Maybe it is for you and that's fine. But that's kind of just normal dishonest behavior, right? I think the hard part here is what comes next. Is the hardest part that the master himself commended the dishonest manager? Like, that's a weird thing to do. Or 
Is it the fact that Jesus himself praises the dishonest manager for being shrewd? Or is it that Jesus seems to say that people who aren't Christians are shrewder or more wise? Another way to say this is that Christians, Jesus is saying in some ways, are not as smart as people who are not Christians. Is that the most difficult part? Or can you not even really just pick one part? It all just kind of feels wrong. And you can't exactly say why, and you sit back and you think, well, I mean, Jesus is the one teaching, so can it be wrong? But man, it feels so wrong. Something just feels off here. What's the hardest part? You don't have to give an answer or even be settled on an answer in your heart. Let's look closely at the story once more. Some people say, and I used the phrase before, some people say he has to have been cooking the books. He had to have his hand in the honeypot, so to speak. He had to be not just being dishonest, but being dishonest for his own personal gain. And he got caught, and the master says, all right, you're fired. But before you leave, get the books together, show me all your accounting, show me what you did, and then I'm going to fire you. It's pretty clear. And the guy, he doesn't even give an excuse. He doesn't even try to defend himself. He knows he's been caught red-handed. He doesn't give an excuse, but he does step back and think. He thinks, oh, I'm, I'm in a pickle. I don't have a job. I'm probably going to jail. This very powerful man, my Lord, my master, he obviously is not happy with me. What am I going to do? Am I going to dig? Well, no, I don't have any physical strength. Can't do that. Am I going to beg? No, I can't beg. I'm too ashamed to beg. And then he remembers, my Lord, my Lord is merciful and he hasn't fired me yet. He hasn't fired me yet. I've still got some power here. And wouldn't you agree that the fact that he didn't fire him on the spot right away, that was very odd. Because he could have And some people would say he should have just fired him right away. He should have hauled him off to a judge. He should have thrown him in prison and thrown away the key. He he should have told everyone else, hey, watch out for this guy. He's dishonest. But he didn't do any of that. He didn't publicly shame him. He didn't go on the internet and write bad things about him. He didn't even fire him right away. He gave him some time. And so the guy hatches a plan. He says, my Lord is so merciful. We'll come back to that later. But he finds a couple people, and this was a lot of money. People say that it could have been up to a year and a half of wages. That's a lot of money to forgive. If you got, I don't care what you make, if you got a year and a half of your wages and you owed that in debt and it was taken away from you, that would be very meaningful to you no matter what. So he hatches this plan. Um, go to fellow debtors, cut their debts. He says, at least when I get booted out of this house, I'll be welcomed into another one. And you see it happen before your very eyes. The guy's relationship with money, it totally changed. Because up until this point, his relationship to money had been, he relied on it. It was what he needed most of all. It's what drove him, even though he had a wonderful Lord, a wonderful master, a wonderful employer, 
That's what drove him to cook the books in the first place. He thought, I need the money more than I need my master. But now it's completely changed, isn't it? Now he learns that he doesn't need to bank on money. He learns to bank instead on his Lord because he knew that his Lord was merciful. And that's really important because if his Lord wasn't merciful, this wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked at all because if the Lord weren't merciful, he would have gone to the, to the people who got their debts slashed and he would have said, hey, I know what happened here. You know what happened here. My manager went rogue and like that doesn't really work out. Guess what? You still owe me all the money. He could have done that. But the manager, he was banking on the fact that his Lord was merciful. That his Lord wanted to be known in the community as someone who was full of mercy, someone who wouldn't go back on what he had said. And at this point, the manager was still the manager, and so his word was basically his Lord's word. And so when he said, I cut your debt in half, it was as if the Lord was saying, I cut your debt in half. And the manager knew that his Lord was merciful and he wouldn't go back on his word. He wasn't banking on money anymore. He was banking on his Lord's mercy. And what caused that sudden shift? Well, it's, you could say it's because he came face to face with his own demise, face to face with the end of himself. Because for all intents and purposes, he was going to be in jail for a long time and have no one left in the world. Came face to face with the end of himself and it totally shifted. That same thing happened to a man named Alfred. Alfred Nobel. He invented a way to stabilize nitroglycerin. He thought this invention, this was the late 1800s, he thought this invention would help a lot of people. Nitroglycerin was very explosive. He thought you could tame it and use it for good. But as I heard another pastor say, Alfred Nobel, he didn't understand human nature. And so when he figured out a way to stabilize nitroglycerin and package it up to be used for good, actually, what he created was dynamite. And what he ultimately created, because human nature, what it is, is what it is, is a way to kill a lot of people a lot easier. And I don't know exactly how this happened, but there was a false report that Alfred Nobel had died, and a newspaper in Paris actually ran his obituary. And so he got to come face to face with his end, so to speak. And the obituary started this way. It said, Dr. Alfred Nobel who became rich, and he did, he became very, very rich, who became rich by finding ways to kill people faster than ever before, died yesterday. And when he saw that, it changed him. It caused him to see what money could never do for him. And that's the heart of this parable. Just like the manager in the story, even though you and I, like we said earlier, we've all mismanaged every single thing that our Lord 
has given us. We've never managed everything perfectly. I haven't, you haven't. We haven't managed our relationships, our resources, our emotions. Like every part of our lives, we've all mismanaged it. And just like in the story, because if you don't know already, the Lord in the story is the capital L Lord of the universe. Just like in the story, our Lord, he would have had every right just to send us to the judge to be pronounced guilty or to throw us in jail and throw away the key. But he didn't. He didn't because your Lord is so merciful. Another way to see it is that you have not been fired just yet. Some commentators say being fired in this story equals the end of our lives here on earth. And we know that we're all going to die as a result of all of our sin and the sin in the world, but you're not dead yet. Even though God would have every right to fire you right away. The Lord is so merciful. Now here's, here's the thing. Because some of you might be thinking, well, this still doesn't, this still doesn't explain like, why Jesus seemed to praise the dishonest manager. There's a couple things. Number one, Jesus wasn't praising him for being dishonest. He was praying him for how he stepped back, thought about it, and then with a lot of wisdom decided on a course to use his resources. Now, if I were writing this parable, could I have written it? No, because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't legitimately do that. Praise a guy who acted in a dishonest way because in his dishonesty, in his dishonesty he was also shrewd and wise. I couldn't do that. It wouldn't be good teaching. But you've got to remember who is telling this parable. This is what brings it home for me. It's, it's Jesus. And Jesus was, he was getting towards the end of his earthly ministry. He was saying to them, how are all these debts going to be made right? I'm going to come and I'm going to make them right. I didn't write these words, I'm just passing them on because they're so, so good. Jesus, Jesus took a quill he dipped it in his own blood and he wrote on the ledger of your debts, paid in full. The answer to all the difficulties in this parable, and there are a lot of difficulties, what's going to happen to the debts? Are they going to have to pay them back? Is the, is the owner just going to absorb them? What's going to happen? The answer is in the one who is telling the parable. And it's that he came and took away all your debts. God did to Jesus what he could have and maybe should have done to us. Abandoned him straight to the jury, straight to the judge where he knew the result would be guilty. He threw him in jail, so to speak, and threw away the key. Abandoned him on the cross because Jesus assumed every single one of our debts. And what does that give you? It gives you eternal security. It, it changes how you view every single thing you have in your life, including money. You don't need to bank on money. You don't need it to make you feel secure or give you status or for anything else that you use it for. You don't need any of your other resources. You don't need to bank on them because what do you and I bank on? We bank on the same thing as the manager in the story. We bank on the fact that our Lord as well 
is merciful. If he weren't, our story would not work out because he would refuse. But the Lord is merciful. He doesn't go back on what he has promised. He doesn't say, I've taken away your debt or Jesus has taken away your debt and then he comes back later and says, no, actually, actually you owe me. He doesn't do that. The Lord in the story, everyone knew he was merciful and he wouldn't come back later to to collect debts that were owed. And your Lord is merciful in the exact same way. He is never going to come back to you and say, yeah, Jesus paid your debts, but you still owe me just a little bit more. And this changes the way you look at your stuff. Alfred Nobel, after he read that obituary, he realized that wasn't how he wanted to be known as the guy who became rich by finding ways to kill people faster than ever before. No, I I doubt he was thinking about Jesus' parable when Jesus, like the point of the parable is he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Be shrewd. I doubt he was thinking about that, but what did he do with his fortune? Well, in his will, he designated his fortune to go towards the Nobel Peace Foundation. It was his way of using his wealth so that he wouldn't be known as the guy who made it easier to kill a bunch of people. He would be known as the guy, like we all know Alfred Nobel, as a guy who promotes peace in the world. That was a shrewd and wise use of his money. But for us, there's an even greater use. Because his reputation as a peace bringer, it's only going to last as long as the Nobel Peace Prize is around or at the very longest till the end of time. But we can use our resources, our money, and invest it in ways that lasts for an eternity. You can invest in people. You can invest in spiritual ministry. Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's not saying if you use worldly wealth to make friends, then you'll get into heaven. No, no. Your eternity is already secure because Jesus paid your debt in full. No, the only question now is when you enter heaven, who will all be there to welcome you? Use your money to gain earthly friends that become spiritual friends so that you, when you enter the eternal dwellings, they will all be there to welcome you with open arms. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I've answered every difficulty with this parable. Feel free to reach out to me anytime and we can talk about it more. But the main point that Jesus gives, it's, it's right there. It says, use worldly wealth to gain friends from yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Don't bank on the money you have, the other resources you have. Don't bank on anything except the fact that your Lord is merciful. Amen.